Welcome to another episode of No Heart Left Behind's Hope in the Heart of Family Life. I'm your host and executive director of NHLB, Alicia Stickles. Today, in part two of our three-part series, Bringing Sexy Back, Keys to Good Sex and Intimacy in Marriage, I am sitting down for a conversation with my friend, Ashley Mossy, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist, as well as a board-certified sex therapist. Yeah, you heard me. And I promise you, this conversation is a game changer. She brings so much wisdom and understanding to a topic that is so often a trouble spot for so many marriages and so often not addressed within Christian circles. We thought this topic was so needed and loved this conversation so much, we decided to bring her back for a seminar. So if you love what you hear, stick around until the end to get more info on our Bringing Sexy Back seminar. Oh, P.S. Due to the mature subject matter, you may want to pop in your earbuds or listen when the kids aren't around, but you definitely will want to listen to this life-giving conversation. Okay, everyone, relax, take a breath, and let's jump in. Welcome to another episode of Hope in the Heart of Family Life. My name is Alicia. I am the host today, and today I am joined with my Gosh, very long time friend, Ashley Mossy. Um, not only is she a friend, she is a licensed LMFT and a board certified sex therapist. So Ashley, thank you so much for being here with us today. Of course, I'm excited. Yes. So um, before, before we jump in, um, want to get to know you a little bit better. Now you and I, go way back and I think the funny way, thing about this way back way back I we're not going to talk about age um <laughs> but I may or may not have used to babysit you mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and actually you were more responsible than I was um you were telling me what we should do and what we weren't allowed to do and all of those things. So that checks out. That's that, uh-huh. that, that oldest daughter syndrome. Uh, yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you're like typical first child, I have to say. So am mm-hmm. I though. Um, and then you were in our youth group at church that I worked with and a Bible study. Um, so I got up close and personal during the teenage years. Mm-hmm. And now I'm sitting here talking with you about sex. That's which right. Is awesome. <laughs> Listen, don't forget that your you and Carrie's wedding was me and my husband's first date. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. <laughs> yes, a little budding youth group romance. That's right. <laughs> I'm going to take responsibility for the success of your totally. marriage. Mm-hmm. By the way, it's very. Um, Right. <laughs> so yeah, so you are married. You have how I many? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I was born and raised on the North Shore. Um, graduated from LSU and moved to Atlanta um, for about ten years, um, basically following my husband. And um, we have three little kids uh, who are three, four, and six. And, um, we're not in Atlanta anymore. We 
lost our minds a little bit during the pandemic, living sort of in the heart of the CDC. And we like left our jobs, houses, cars, everything to travel for a year. And when the chips settled back down, we landed in South Florida. So we are um, newly resettled in Palm Beach County, Florida. That's awesome. Yeah. So I can remember when you told, because like, let me set the stage here. So you and Roy just decided "Hmm, we're going to quit our jobs and travel for a year, which is like the most unfirst child syndrome thing that you could do. And your kids were all under the age of five, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I remember thinking when you told me that I'm like, I don't know if she's genius or if she's nuts. <laughs> I know a little bit of both, but yeah, we're like both recovering responsibility addicts. And this was like the least responsible thing that you could do. <laughs> and it was so great. We had such a good time. Um, and, but it was, it was equal parts, very great and very hard. Traveling with a 18 month old is no joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and so. You know what? Um, well, real quick before I ask you, so can you give me your like top three places you visited super quick? Yes. So my kids would tell you all day, every day that it's the Maldives and we have to instruct them to not talk about that in first grade because it's going <laughs> to make them look bougie. Um, so we love the Maldives. We really loved Abu Dhabi in the UAE. And then we really loved the Nordic countries. So like Copenhagen and um, uh, Bergen, Norway. It was probably awesome. I feel like we should have a whole separate podcast on just (laughs) like what God showed you. (laughs) What happens when you lose your mind and (laughs) for a year with small children? Yes, I know. Um, But what um what's interesting about that is y'all came back from that trip and Carrie and I so when y'all come back into Louisiana we always try to get together and have dinner and this idea for this podcast um the lord really laid it on my heart after we had dinner with you guys and i mean when you go to dinner with a sex therapist like naturally sometimes the conversation just Kind of goes so that way. It goes in that direction at dinner. Um, but just listening to like your wisdom and your knowledge, and like Carrie and I are sitting there, like, where were you like ten years ago? <laughs> <laughs> Why have it taken so long for us to hear this? Because you know, honestly, I feel like creating you know, creating good sex and intimacy in marriage, you know, the message from the church is that sex is good. It's holy. Um, you know, that we're supposed to be And when I say intimacy, I just mean connection with your spouse. It doesn't necessarily just, I'm not talking just physical, um, that that's like a good and needed thing. But after that, like, can you throw a sister a bone? Because there's so much, you know, there's so many dynamics and nuances and, and stuff that hinders that. And then in this couple, like as a couple, you're sitting there, okay, this is supposed to be like the best thing ever. What's wrong with us? Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
and and you have I mean I hate to say it but like you just have little guidance you know yeah not only are we not thrown any bones the bones that we are thrown are not helpful and not healthy. Yes. They've actually created more problems than they've solved. So yeah, yeah it's, it's a whole thing. Yeah. So before we start talking about some of these topics that I'm really excited to jump into today, um, so what made you want to become a counselor or even more like a sex therapist? Like what's the story there? Yeah. I mean, not many little girls are like, when I want to grow up, I want to be a sex therapist. I know. I know. <laughs> um, yeah. So right after college, I worked as a caseworker for um, birth moms at an adoption agency and they would get free counseling as part of the program. And I was the person that would drive them like to and from their appointments. And sometimes I would sit in on their appointments and it was just enough exposure to make me realize that um, I didn't want to do more of like the agency casework side of sort of the helping mental health field. Um, and I was more interested in um, like being in the trenches emotionally with people. Um, so that was kind of the Kickstarter. And then I've, I've been fascinated with relationships my entire life. Um, I've never seen individuals. I've always seen people inside of a system. And I didn't realize that that was, I thought that was normal um, until mm. I got to grad school and all of my colleagues were basically like anything but couples don't make me see couples. And I was like, I don't know what to do with this depressed single woman that's in my office. Like I will <laughs> screaming, I will take a screaming match over that any day. Um, and then sex therapy is something that I just kind of fell into my, uh, graduate program had a connection with the American board of, um, Christian sex therapy. And so they offered courses through my grad school. And so I took a lot of classes and the more that I took, the more fascinated I was. And then just in realizing that I was going to be working with couples, sex is a major part of that. Um, it's yes, so girl. a lifesaver. I've never seen a distressed couple that wasn't having sexual issues. Uh, yeah. and it's this added side benefit of just making for like a very fun response to the question of what do you do for a living? Um, just like yes. back and watch people's faces, try to process that very weird information and come up with a, a response to that is hilarious. So, you know, <laughs> it's, it's an added perk. <laughs> So just the added perk of making people uncomfortable. I love deeply, it. deeply awesome. uncomfortable. It's <laughs> But what a gift you give couples, you know, just that. I mean, like I said, the just even the 15, 20 minutes that you were kind of briefly brushing over some of this content that we're going to cover today. Um, you know, I mean, Carrie and I got in the car and we're like, oh my gosh, this explains so much. And it's really like, even this little 15 minute conversation has helped, um, you know, this part of our relationship. And so I just want to, you know, encourage people that are listening right now is that, you know, we're not just going to throw you, you know, sex is good. Sex is holy. The man needs it. It's the role of the, you know, the typical what? stuff that you hear. Yes. Like, we're going to get into some dynamics that are just so life-giving and helpful. So um, why don't you start just like kind of let's stick our toe in um, because I feel like this is going to be a little bit new territory um, for some people. Let's start with the theology of sex. Like mm -hmm. 
let's lay that foundation of the the biblical perspective of that and what yeah. God says about it. For sure. So before I do that, let me just give a quick disclaimer because I've spent so much of my professional life working with um, survivors of sexual trauma. I just want to acknowledge that sex is not a fun topic for like a lot of people. And if that is you listening to this, please give yourself permission right now to turn it off. Um, if it gets to be too hard, if you start feeling your body being overwhelmed or anxious, um, come back to it later or don't. Um, but basically want to acknowledge that this is um, it's fun for me to talk about because I find it professionally interesting. And also there is a lot of hurt and harm behind this, not just with survivors of abuse or trauma, but also with really painful entrenched dynamics within marriage. And so, um, I come to it with a little bit of, of levity because that's my personality, but I also understand that this is just a, a profoundly personal topic. And, um, I would request that listeners be kind and gentle with themselves while listening, Yeah, do what you need to do. So with that being said, um, I would say I would preface this with, this is my theology of sex. There are a lot of people who have a lot of different ways of thinking about sex. And I'm always so, um, wary of when we talk about like, this is the biblical version of sex, because there's a lot of ways that you can interpret the Bible. So this is my theology of sex. I found it to be really helpful and I hope that it will be helpful for others. Um, but this is by no means the only way that you can think about sex. Right. Yeah. Um, so first, first aspect is that sex is good. Um, we talk about this in Genesis one, God created male and female in his image. He said it was very good. Surprise. This includes your genitals. This means that your penis, your vagina, your clitoris are good. Also, did we have a warning about like, don't listen to this with kids in the car? We probably. Oh, should. yes. No, we do. Yes. Okay. Taken care of. No problem. Marvelous. <laughs> um, the next bit is that sex is holy. We hear that a lot, especially in faith-based environments. First um, Corinthians 6 talks about this. First Thessalonians 4 talks about this, that our bodies are a holy and a dwelling our bodies are holy and they're a dwelling place for the spirit of God. Um, so what we do with our bodies is a holy act. What you do with your body matters. Sex matters. Um, the other, another component is that sex is inherently sacrificial. Um, first Corinthians talks about this first Corinthians seven. Um, and it talks about the mutual yielding of bodies. Sex is not a weapon to club over your spouse's head. It is a mutual yielding of bodies. Um, there's another that talks about in those verses, like don't deprive each other of, um, of sex, except for a mutual agreed upon, whatever. Um, that has been used to clobber women. And yes. I will not be doing that. We're going to be talking about that. Um, but there is an element of that that I have found to be true, that when you enter the state of marriage with your partner, you have not agreed to a life of celibacy. Monogamy, yes, but mm -hmm. not necessarily celibacy, unless you did. 
I, there are some couples that are like, <laughs> we uh, ain't doing this. <laughs> it's all good. Okay. But if your expectation was monogamy, not celibacy, that is a very real consideration that we need to work around. Um, the other part of the idea of sex being sacrificial is that other stuff has to be sacrificed in order to, for sex to happen. So if you are working 90 hours a week and getting home at 11 PM and wondering why you're not having more sex, mm, something's <laughs> going to have to be sacrificed. Um, right. Where that has gotten really messed up, and I'll probably talk more about this a little later, but um, is where you have often a man working a bunch, not being helpful or present in the home, and then expecting his wife to make time for sex, even though she's drowning in all of their life responsibilities, which is yeah. so opposite of the way that Jesus asks us to behave, um, but has somehow gotten kind of twisted. So, um, other stuff is going to be sacrificed. Sex doesn't just happen, especially when she's throwing kids or careers or hormones. It is not, it doesn't just happen. You're going to have to say no to other stuff in order to say yes to a healthy sexual experience. Mm. Um, I love that. The last little bit is that sex is supposed to be fun. Um, Proverbs talks about this literally from the book of Song of Solomon. Like it is all about rejoice in the wife of your youth. Um, there's a verse that talks about like, you know, let him kiss me. Your love is more delightful than wine. Um, this couple's having a good time. This is supposed to be pleasurable and fun. It, it's not like this Presbyterian vibe of like so solemn and somber and holy, like we are supposed to have a good time. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the underpinnings of my theology around sex. What I will say is not on here. And I'm going to make a point of this. Um, spicy take sex is not a need. It hmm. is not necessary. It is sex used to be thought of as a biological drive, um, AKA a, a, like a motivational system that keeps you from dying. Like an example of this would be hunger or thirst or sleep. If you do not eat, you're going to get very uncomfortable in your body. You are going to start having organs shut down um, and you have to eat in order to keep from unaliving yourself. Sex is not that. No one has suffered yeah. damage from lack of sex. You will not die from lack of sex. Um, we are called to discipline our bodies and to acquire self-control. God did not give us dominion over the earth and everything in it, except for your penis or your vagina. Your sexuality should not own you in that way. Um, if huh. it feels on par with oxygen for you, um, it's probably <laughs> time to find a therapist. <laughs> um, there are a lot of reasons why that could be. Um, but my, my hope for everyone is this idea of it's for freedom that Christ set us free. And I want you to yeah. experience sexual freedom. And for some people that might be sexual freedom to experiment and explore. And for other people, that's going to look more like freedom from a desire that feels all consuming or compulsive, or like it's driving the bus. Um, yeah. 
So this was a huge failing of purity culture in the 90s and 2000s, which taught that specifically men needed sex to live. And it was the wife's responsibility to fulfill that need or else he would have to go fulfill that need elsewhere, whether that was an affair or it was porn. Um, but it basically taught an entire generation of women that they were responsible for their husband's sexual discipline. I have the most massive problem with this. The fruit of this tree is rotten to the core. And uh, it has been so harmful. Um, There are a lot of things that I'm like, well, it might work for some people, it might work for others. Like I've just seen enough in my practice. Um, This is not one of those things. This idea that men cannot live without sex and, and the woman is responsible for providing that or else bad things happen. It is exclusively harmful. Um, is giving, it makes men like out to be these sex crazed zombies instead of sons of God who are perfectly capable of, of, um, self-discipline and self-control. It creates a dynamic where women are not able to cultivate their own sense of desire because sex is obligatory and it's required and you can't say yes to something. If you don't have a no, that gets into the whole issue of consent in marriage. So I can get on a big, big soapbox about that, but the, the basic, um, the basic framework behind that is that sex is not a drive. If sex was a drive, the way hunger is a drive that you need it to survive and you, you have to have it or you'll die. You, you get the kind of society where people who, um, are, have higher sexual desire, it, it gets into sexual entitlement. And that is a huge factor behind the epidemic of sexual abuse and misconduct and trauma that we have in this country right now. Um, wow. basically, <laughs> Your, your partner, and I'm, I'm going to use very gendered language because this was a very gendered message as it has been given. So husbands, your wife is an image bearer of the most high God with whom you get to share your nakedness and your pleasure and your very self. She is not a masturbation receptacle. Yeah. she is not food to be consumed so that you don't die those are two very different frameworks um and and it is a hill that i will die on (laughs) yes Um, what i will say is that when we enter into marriage there is sort of a different um subset of needs and connection and attachment that is a biological need. It's a drive. We have studies proven that you actually die without connection and attachment to people. Um, And when you enter a marriage as an adult human, sex becomes part of the menu of connection and attachment relationships. And so, like I said earlier about like monogamy, not celibacy, it is part of that. So before people start like coming for me about, you know, what are you telling me to never have sex? No. Um, uh, Engaging sexually in your marriage is so important. It is a thrive response. So rather than it being a, um, a biological drive, it's an incentive motivation, which means that you are working towards something pleasurable and it's worth working towards is part of what it means yeah. to drive a human, um, especially in the context of marriage. So, uh, yeah. that is a and would you call it, 
yeah. Would you would you classify then as sex um, as more of a desire, like a strong desire, instead of in the I need category? That sex is important, but it is not necessary. Gotcha. So it yeah. is important, but you will not die without it. Yeah, and I you know, just sitting here listening to you and talking about that message of purity culture. Like, I mean, just, I I can think about my own story and, you know, and Carrie gave me permission to share this is just, you know, I am one of those people that has, you know, sexual trauma in my background. And so for me, that can, that, you know, complicates things in terms of my yes Mm -hmm. um, to that. And so, you know, again, I mean, I've, I've been a Christian since about the age of 13. And so growing up very much in, you know, purity culture, um, there is that thought there, it does give you that pressure of like, okay, I'm dealing with all of this stuff over here. You know, I know I'm supposed to want sex and like sex and, and all of that kind of stuff, but I really struggle in this area, but then, oh my gosh, you know, my, my husband, he has this need. And if I don't take care of it, then, mm-hmm. you know, um, then he's going to leave me. And I mean, it's, it's awful. Yeah. It is awful. And you do not realize how detrimental it is to like just in the enjoyment and the freedom and the, the pleasure aspect. So yeah. I want to dive into, okay, so what are some of these things that maybe, um, uh, I don't know if it's stand in the way or just the nuancey stuff that, you know, prevents sex from being good or, um, connection kind of like you were talking about, like, I remember in our conversation, you started talking about, and I don't know if this is where you want to start or not, but desire types, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that was huge. And I don't know if you want to start there, if you want to go in a different direction, but just yeah. give us the stuff, girl. Okay. So let me start with just, I, I'm going to get to that pretty quickly, but let me start with the idea of defining good sex is going to look very, very different for each individual couple. There is no mm-hmm. rubric of what it means to have objectively good sex. Every <laughs> marriage gets to create a specific definition of what that looks like for them and no one else, um, which is delightful. Um, it's a little complicated when you know we're trying to help people open up and talk more about sex but also leave sort of the comparative lens at home because everybody's got something different going on. You've got different personalities. You've got different amounts of kids. You've got different social locations in terms of finances and it's just different. So there are a couple of fairly common components, which I'm going to go over really quick. Number one is the fallacy of frequency. (laughs) We have turned (laughs) frequency into the only indicator of how good or not good your sex life is. And it is BS. Um, That is a component that's part of it, but also you want to account for intensity. You want to account for um, mutuality and um, are are both people enjoying it. You want to um, 
account for like just different phases in your life because frequency is going to change. I learned recently that the breastfeeding woman has the same biological hormone markers as a postmenopausal woman. Like you think frequency is going to be happening a whole lot? Like no. So frequency, throw that out. It's just, it's one measure. It's not everything. Um, Mm -hmm. The other thing is that good sex is sort of a, a three chord braid of physical, emotional, and spiritual. Secular um, organizations get really heavy on the physical, on sort of like the skills and the feelings and what's happening in your genitals. I find that faith-based environments go really heavy on the emotional and the spiritual. And that's great. That's It's an important part that you are feeling connected, that you are honoring the sacredness of this gift that God has given us. Um, and what... I think faith-based communities are needing to hear more is that it is also about skills. (laughs) If you are feeling really emotionally connected to your wife, but you don't know where a clitoris is, if you are feeling like you and your husband are just on the same page, but you don't know how to give a blow job, um, we got some, we have a skill gap that we need to learn about. So... (laughs) It's all three. We cannot take away any one of those things. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, there's another, there's a guy named Chris McCluskey who does something called the lovemaking cycle. And it's um, basically four components of the, uh, of, of a sexual experience. And, you know, because he is a believer, all of them start with the letter A. I don't know why we feel like we have to do this as Christians is to alliterate everything, but we do. So but we do, and it well, works. It helps you remember it. Got to. So he's got four A's. Um, the first is atmosphere, which is not just like lingerie and candles and music playing in the background. It's what's your marriage like? What's your communication like? What are do you have boundaries around your room or can your kids just walk in? Like just stuff like that um, is, is about atmosphere. And then you have arousal, which has to do with the the physical component of, are we both um, feeling the physical sensation of arousal? Are we both orgasming? There's a huge orgasm gap between men and women. And it is so much worse amongst women who profess faith than it is amongst women who do not. Wow. Um, and then the, the third a is apex, which refers to climax um, is this moment of surrender and talking about all the things with orgasm, because even though we don't want a sex life that is exclusively orgasm focused, um, if you, if you focus too hard on orgasm, you're going to scare it away. <laughs> Uh, But it does need to be a focus um, because we should all be orgasming if we would like to have that experience. Um, And then the fourth is the afterglow, which is what happens after. Don't just roll over and go to sleep. Don't kind of keep the fire burning for the next time and kind of enjoy that connection point. So those are all going to be part of just like a general um, healthy sex life. and. What 
I'll get in, if it's okay, I'll get into some of the different desire types. Yeah, no, okay. I would love that. Cause I just remember when we were sitting, we were talking about desire types and I think we also talked about like brakes and gas. Mm-hmm. So I would love to get into those two things yeah. because I, I mean, just the mis- misconceptions surrounding all of that yeah. stuff was like completely mind blowing for me. I would say anyway, I like, I have done a lot of seminars and a lot of education just in the the counseling room about this. And this is like the number one, most mind bending um, information for people. So I'll go over it just kind of quickly. Um, Yeah. There are actually two different types of sexual desire. One is spontaneous or initiative desire. The other is responsive. And initiative desire happens when, so let's say that you are at work and you are typing away at your computer and all of a sudden you go, I am hungry. I would like a cheeseburger. And you leave the office to go in search of the cheeseburger. That is initiative desire. That is mostly what we see in books, in movies. Um, That is the the heavily weighted type of desire, but it is not the only one. There's also something called receptive or responsive desire. This happens when you're typing away at your desk and your coworker says, I'm hungry. I'm going to go get a hamburger. Do you want to come with? And you think to yourself, I'm really not that hungry, but I could use a break and it'll be a fun, you know, time to catch up and talk. And so you follow your coworker to the restaurant, you sit down, you start smelling the smells of cheeseburgers cooking. (laughs) And then your coworker orders it and it comes to the table and it's like got the shiny butter thing on top. And it's like, you know, cheese. that looks pretty good. And then your coworker's like, well, do you want to try a bite? Like, I know you, you you weren't hungry, but you want to try a bite and you get one bite into that hamburger. And if somebody tries to take it away from you, you are going to stab them with a fork. (laughs) That is, um, that that's desire. So we would not say that, like, we would not say that one of those is hunger and the other one is not right. It's just that the experience of desire came at different times, a, an initiative desired person experiences often a um, desire before arousal template and a responsive desired person experiences a um, arousal first, then desire shows up. And so um, the about 75% of men identify as initiative desire, about 15% of women, um, about 5% of men respond, uh, identify as receptive desire and about 30% of women identify as receptive desire. And then it, there's a, sort of another category called context dependent desire, which means you can kind of switch in and out. Um, and that's about 20% of men, about 50% of women. The reason that I think a big chunk of that is, is women is um, the hormonal life cycle. And so women are having an ovulatory menstrual, like normative menstrual cycle will experience initiative desire at the peak of ovulation and everything outside of that will be responsive. Gotcha. Yeah. That is part of it. 
Yeah. And I mean, okay, so I'm just, <laughs> I'm going to jump in and just listening to you. I'll be, I'll be the, the case study of this. Perfect. Like I can imagine how this creates so many um, misunderstandings within oh, yeah. a couple. Like, I, I mean, I'll, I'm just going with the only thing I know. Like I definitely listening to you um, am 100% more receptive type desire. And mm -hmm. Carrie is definitely, I mean, we're like kind of classic, right? Like he is, you know, initiative, yeah. but at the same time, he likes it. If I initiate, oh, I am, I like, I, of course. Right. I don't, but I don't have, like, I have, I feel like I have like next to nothing of that kind of desire. Um, and so because I don't do that, because I'm more like the one that he's kind of got a, like, Hey, do you want to go get a cheeseburger kind of thing? And like, so I can warm up to the idea and then like, I'm like, okay, yeah, let's go. Um, like he sometimes thinks that there's like, that I'm not attracted to him yeah. or that there's something wrong with him. And it's just like, no, I just, I just don't, I don't know. I just don't, I don't do that. But like, yeah. that's just caused, I mean, do you see stuff like that coming into play? Like when you're working with couples, oh. like what's another situation that you might see that's so, pretty common? I would say that the research says that about 80% of couples experience some level of desire discrepancy, which means that one person identifies as having a more frequent or higher level of sexual desire than the other person. 80% yep. of couples, um, almost all the time, an initiative desire person marries a responsive desire person. <laughs> um, and that, so that happens all the time. Part yeah. Of what goes into that, and I'm, I'll talk a little bit about sort of the sexual breaks and accelerators now. Um, so this is this is a, a dual control model that was developed in the 90s. It's super helpful for identifying exactly what you're talking about of why do I not think about this? Why do, and, but he wants me to initiate or she wants me to initiate. Like it's, it's this, okay? So basically everyone has a sexual accelerator and a sexual break. Your accelerator is your sexual excitation system. Basically, your accelerator scans your environment for sexually relevant information and sends the signal from your brain to your genitals to turn on, light the fire. Breaks is your sexual inhibition system. It's got two parts, basically external, which is maybe it's an inappropriate setting. Maybe you are in public and you are going to get arrested. Um, could be a fear of getting walked in on. Could be a fear of getting pregnant. Um, and then you have the internal uh, breaks, which are things like when you are talking badly about yourself to yourself, um, performance fear, am I going to get hard? Am I going to have an orgasm? Is this taking too long? Is this happening too quickly? All of that um, is part of a sexual inhibition system. And what hits your, your breaks and your accelerator is learned. So there is no innate sexual stimuli. So for example, kissing feels sexually relevant to us because we learned that it is. Okay. So mm -hmm. this, is, okay. this is culturally different all over the world. Mm -hmm. um, and all sexual function and dysfunction is a balance or an imbalance between the accelerator and the brakes. 
the, the, the process of arousal is the activation of the accelerator and the deactivation of the brakes. And what is interesting about this is that sensitivity to either the accelerator or the brakes, it's a trait that remains pretty stable over time. Mm. So think things like IQ or introversion versus extroversion. Those stay pretty stable and your um, sexual temperament, which is um, Emily uh, Nagoski refers to this as your sensitivity to your brakes and your accelerator as your sexual temperament, um, that stays stable over time. Okay. There's nothing wrong with you. There is nothing wrong with your spouse. This is simply an aspect of personality that is fairly hmm. stable. And you need to know what it is so that you can work around it. Generally, so, can sorry. I ask a question? No, that's okay. So I just want to make sure I'm understanding you correctly. So you're saying that everybody has both brakes and accelerators, but yes. kind of like personality, you you tend, you you have a, like you're either heavier brakes than accelerators or vice versa kind yep. of thing. Is that what you're saying? Okay. Mm-hmm. You awesome. tend usually people tend to be either more accelerator sensitive or brake sensitive. Okay, mm-hmm. um, but you have both, which you is have both. This is the part that blew my mind. Even if you couples. think you don't, you have both. Uh, typically, men have more sensitive accelerators and women have more sensitive brakes. So, but not always. Yeah, but not always. It's it's like, you know, anywhere between 20 and 30% of women who would identify as the higher sexual desire spouse. Um, So if that's Mm -hmm. you, you're also not abnormal. There are lots of you. That is like one in five couples, one in four couples. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. So you're not like some weirdo on the side. Um, Yeah. So basically if you have someone with really sensitive brakes and a less sensitive accelerator, your brain is looking for all the reasons not to be turned on. And it takes a lot of concentration and intentionality to engage in sex, which is so not anything we get exposed to in media or in books or storylines. We're just kind of fed, this should happen spontaneously, but it doesn't. If you have Mm -hmm. a responsive desire type and if you have sensitive brakes, um, the reverse is that if you have somebody with a hairpin trigger accelerator and less sensitive brakes, you have someone who is very easily turned on and may actually struggle with compulsive or risky behavior because mm. their brakes are not sensitive enough to perceive a threat or a risk. And they just are stomping on the accelerator all the day. Gotcha. So both yeah. are necessary. We need to have both. Um, so often like what I see in couples is that they will try to amp up the accelerators without dealing with the brakes. So for example, um, like a, a husband is trying to get his wife to be more, um, like initiative in her desire and he's bringing home flowers every day, but he hasn't cleaned the bathroom in a month. That's mm. trying to ramp up the accelerator without dealing with the break, which is that the bathroom is disgusting and it's hard for her to pay attention to sexually relevant context when her home is gross or, yeah. or wearing- her kids are in the other room or, Correct. you know, whatever. 
Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe, or maybe, um, you're wearing like a cute little lingerie set, but you got a huge fight on the phone on your, like that basically in a car, what happens when you stomp on the accelerator, but the brakes are already mashed into the floor. When the wheels spin. That's correct. Your car is going absolutely nowhere. Yeah. Typically, I would say most of the time, the brakes are what's going to determine if the car of arousal gets rolling. You've got mm. to pull the brakes. Yeah. And everybody focuses on the accelerators. That's so true. Yes. So like I was... Um, working with a couple. And by the way, anytime I share a story about clients, I either have their permission to share it in a non-identifying way in an educational context, or it is a composite of several couples to the point that yeah. they could be listening and wouldn't know that it was about. Right. Um, confidentiality mm-hmm. is very, very important. So um, all that to say, I was working with a couple where the wife was dealing with um PTSD and some self-esteem issues because she was laid off from her job. Um, her husband is trying to send. So she's like, just never having sex ever. Her husband's trying to send flirty texts. He's giving back rubs. He's doing more chores. He's like trying, he's trying so hard and he's yeah. understandably very frustrated because nothing is working. But what was happening is that the PTSD and the self-esteem were mashing the brakes into the floor so hard. So we started gotcha. working on that. She found another job and all of a sudden she's interested in having sex again because her brakes are not like just pedal to the metal. And so all of a sudden the accelerator can be effective. So yeah. we adjust the brakes, the car got moving. Yeah. And I find you had said this too, <laughs> this is like a life-changing dinner, um, that like typically in couples, what happens is, is one, one person becomes the brakes and the other becomes the accelerator when the actual goal is for you to manage both in both people. Is that right? Did I say that? Yep. I totally forgot that I said <laughs> Did that. Did I learn? It's something that I say often. <laughs> yeah. Um, So yeah, it it gets really imbalanced. So if you think about a couple as a system, um, the system will always balance itself. And so if you have someone who has very, very sensitive breaks and um, is just stomped on them, the other person is going to become all accelerator all the time. And that's when Mm. you get into this environment of feeling like you are being hounded for sex, or if you're the accelerator person feeling like you are just dying um, because this person never, ever wants to have sex with you. And are they attracted to me anymore? And what is happening to our marriage? And I mean, it just causes a whole thing. The idea is that in health, both people are managing breaks and accelerators that you're not relying on one person to be the brakes and one person to be the accelerator all the time. This was another thing that purity culture gifted us with was basically men got to be all accelerator all the time because it was completely dependent on the woman to stop things before they went too far or to, and basically women grew up prior to marriage, like in dating contexts having to have their guards up all the time because they were the ones that were responsible for stopping things because yeah. they were these, you know, just 
like Yeti behemoth years of sexual desire that could not and be had controlled. No. Um, and, <laughs> and had to take no responsibility for their own control correct. and so we, desire. We yeah. created an entire generation of women who are all breaks. And then we tell them, get married and turn on your accelerator. And they're like, <laughs> accelerator. I've never even seen that inside of my car. Yes. What are you talking about? It's, <laughs> yeah. It's not great. Yeah. Yeah. So, man, we could just like keep going on and on about <laughs> all of these things. Like we could talk for hours. And that's why I am really excited to say that we are going to have you on October 19th for a seminar and we're calling it bring it bringing sexy back keys to good sex and intimacy and marriage where we're going to like dive even further into these topics, but also talk about, okay, all of this information. I mean, I'm sitting here listening to you and I'm like, oh my gosh, I have so many questions and what do I do and how do we fix this and blah, blah, blah. And that's really kind of what we're going to dive into at the, at the seminar, right? For sure. For sure. I leave yeah. a lot of Q and a time when I do this workshop. So, yeah. So, um, I guess I want to end with, okay, you know, because I am sure there are like a majority of the people listening to this right now that at some point in this conversation have identified, you know, yes, this is us. Like we are struggling with this part of our marriage. What would your encouragements to them be just in terms of, I mean, I know every couple is different, but what to do, you know, resources, maybe encouragements that they're not like, this is a hopeless situation because it's not hopeless. I mean, you know, I feel like there's an enemy out there. Like my husband said something, um, you know, very early on in our marriage when we were kind of like just exploring all of this was that um, he said, you know, the enemy will get you to do everything he can to have sex before you're married. And then he will do everything he can to prevent you from having sex and enjoying it after you're married. And it's, I mean, that just, that feels very true and it was, and it's been tough. So yes. What, what would you encourage our listeners with? Yeah. So I would say number one, come to the seminar that I'm going to teach because good sex yeah. with good information. Um, yes. And that I have a lot of good information just over 10 years of working in, um, with people in this field and um, kind of standing on the shoulders of research giants um, that have just uncovered really amazing things. So um, yeah, come to the seminar. It is great. And it is fun. It is not stressful. Um, there's a lot of laughter and uh, it's, it's a good time. Um, yeah. the second thing that I would say is there's a sex therapist that I follow on Instagram and read her book. Um, and she is not a Christian and will probably, um, alarm a lot of people. So like, don't necessarily go seek her out, but she has really good advice. Um, her name is Vanessa Marin, but she's got really good advice when she says, treat sex like a hobby. We get so obsessed with like, a lot of times we treat sex like a job where we're going to get punished if we don't get it right. And we have to perform perfectly. And 
Um, we should already know what we're doing and whatever. But if it's a hobby, you're always learning new things about a hobby and there's less pressure and it's more fun. A hobby is a thing that you do for fun. Um, yeah. So treat sex like a hobby. And I would also say that um, good sex, you have to be able to talk about it. So mm. that may mean that you need to work with a therapist to deal with your not so great communication before you even get to sex. Um, please don't right. start with a hot button topic like sex <laughs> if you can't talk about the dishes or who's taking the children to school. Like don't, don't start there. That will go bad. <laughs> um, Might but, need a mediator for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Eventually you're going to need to be able to talk to it, uh, talk with each other about it. Um, but if you are not already generally friends who believe the best about each other in other areas of conversation, find a therapist, get some help there. Um, yeah, put yeah. sex on the back burner for a little bit because um, you need to be friends first. And finally, yeah. I would say to give up. Um, a, a satisfying and mutually enjoyable experience is available to you. And um, it's so worth it. It's so worth the work to get there, being that this is a lifetime hobby. <laughs> um, that you're gonna be you're gonna be doing this together, hopefully for a really long time. Um, people that I know that are in their 70s and 80s are having the best sex of their lives. And so they know um, my mom and dad, oh, maybe I shouldn't <laughs> say that, but I'm like, stop. Yeah. Mm. Okay. <laughs> it's happening. And they're all it. So yes. yeah, don't give up. Don't give up. This is possible for you. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Ashley, thank you so much just for all your wisdom. And like I said, if you, if this strikes a chord with you and you're like, I need to know more, um, you can find information about our, um, bringing sexy back seminar, um, in the show notes. And the other good thing is that we are going to have you back again next week um, where we're going to dive in more specifically um, to a pretty serious topic that I would imagine affects a whole bunch of couples um, and maybe they don't even realize it, but just how sexual trauma can um, affect the you know, intimacy and the sexual relationship within a marriage. So um, it's important. It's a hard topic, but I'm just, I'm glad that you're going to bring so much wisdom to it. So thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, we will talk again next week. Perfect. Hey friends, we hope that you are loving the podcast because we absolutely love helping to equip and empower you and your family to thrive with practical tools based on Christ-centered principles. In fact, we love it so much that over 17 years ago, No Heart Left Behind became an official 501c3 nonprofit organization so we could make supporting families with the Word of God and the love of Christ our full-time mission. Locally, we offer affordable biblical counseling as well as various family-focused events and programs like this podcast. And we have been able to do this solely through supporter donations. So if you would like to support the podcast or the mission of No Heart Left Behind, you can donate by visiting our website, www.noheartleftbehind.com backslash donate, or click the donate link provided in the show notes. 100% of the proceeds go to ministry outreach and operations, which includes keeping this podcast coming to you on a weekly basis. Any support is a blessing, so thank you in advance for partnering with us to empower families to thrive with the Word of God and the love of Christ. Thank you.